We need to magnify the real sin that lies behind conflict. If we are engaged in a pattern of arguing and quarreling, it's because we love God too little and this world and our own sinful, selfish desires too much. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues our current series with part six of War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Is it right for Christians to fight? Do you love the world and its sinful pleasures more than you love God? What causes conflict between people? Well, Tom will continue to explore these questions as he examines what James 4, verses 1 through 10 says about the real source of conflict. The answer may surprise you. Well, let's join Tom now as we discover more from God's Word on The Word Unleashed. But what I want you to see is Israel here is pictured as his wife. So when Israel was unfaithful to God, when she allowed her heart to wander away, when she chose a path of sin, when she got involved in worshiping the idols of the peoples around her, God accused her of spiritual adultery. There are countless Old Testament passages that make that point, but I think none more clear or more direct than Hosea. Turn over a few pages to the minor prophet Hosea in You remember that God, through Hosea and his relationship with his wife, Gomer, pictured the unfaithfulness of Israel to him. Gomer, you remember, became involved with a countless number of men in unfaithfulness to her husband, Hosea. And in chapter 2, God makes the connection to him and Israel. Listen to what he says in Hosea 2, verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot... She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, God says, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but she will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Jesus used the same kind of language of adultery in his own ministry. You remember that he often referred in the Gospels to the people living then, the Jewish people living then, as a sinful and what? Adulterous generation. The apostles use this same sort of image. They speak of marriage. In fact, Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians. Turn there for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You see, the church, all of us together, are the bride of Christ. We are married, or will be married to Christ. We are committed and betrothed to Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He says, but I am afraid, and he goes on to say, I'm afraid you're going to commit spiritual adultery. That's the context in which these dear people heard James' words to them in James chapter 4. 
Listen carefully. James is saying that if we as individuals, if you are engaged in a pattern of arguing and fighting, then you are committing spiritual adultery against God. That obviously takes the sin of quarreling to a whole new level. You see, we have a tendency to downplay our sin. We say things to ourselves like, well, yeah, it was a lie, but it was just a little white lie. I mean, it didn't really hurt anybody. Or, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. And yes, I know I argue and fight with my spouse or my friends or whomever, but it's just not that big an issue. Well, God says it is. He sees us, if we're engaged in a pattern of that kind of sin, as involved in spiritual adultery against him. Our problem is a spiritual one. Now, if you're thinking with me, and I hope you are, then your next question should be, now wait a minute. How did we get from quarreling and arguing to spiritual adultery? How can James say that the real sin behind arguing and quarreling is unfaithfulness to God? That seems on the surface, doesn't it, like a huge logical leap. Well, James goes on to explain. Look at verse 4 again. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now remember, he's already identified the source of quarreling as the pursuit of our pleasure, our cravings. And now he's saying that when we live to pursue those pleasures, we are living just like the world around us. So when we decide to pursue our own pleasures, we declare ourselves, as it were, to be the friends of the world. When we make pleasure the chief aim of our lives, we become the friend of the world. The word friendship here, by the way, is a word which comes from a word that means to love or to have affection for. In this context, the word world does not mean people, but rather a system, a value set, a mindset, a way of thinking. It's describing those who are locked into a system of pursuing self-satisfaction, self-enjoyment, and self-promotion. That's what they live for. That's what it's all about. And when you and I become locked into that kind of mindset, we become friends of the world, or in other words, worldly. Now, I'm reluctant to use that word because it's so often misunderstood. In the circles I grew up, there was a lot of confusion about what it means to be worldly. There are really two dangers in defining worldliness. The first danger is to define it in an ascetic way. That is, the person who thinks that Christians must completely remove themselves from living in the world, that it's wrong to enjoy even the legitimate pleasures that unbelievers enjoy here. Some of you perhaps have read Garrison Keillor's book, Lake Wobegon Days, which he describes a bit of his upbringing connected to the Brethren Church, and he, he describes the reality that there were hot water brethren and cold water brethren. The hot water brethren enjoyed a nice hot bath or hot shower. But there were those in the brethren movement who felt that that was giving into the body and the flesh too much to take a hot shower, and so you should take a cold one because that kept your body in line, and they were called the cold water brethren. There are people around us who believe that worldliness is enjoying any of the pleasures of this life that God has given to us. You see them disconnect themselves from the culture you see it in the lifestyles of people like the Amish. You see it in nunneries and monasteries. 
It's an ascetic approach to worldliness. The other misunderstanding of worldliness, however, is to think that it is merely external, that worldliness is bound up in certain things you do. Of course, that list varies depending on where you are and who you're associated with. It's strange how it can happen. There was, in the circles in which I grew up, a predisposition against any sort of alcohol consumption. Well, I heard recently a conversation in which a European Christian woman was drinking her glass of wine and was appalled that American Christian women would think about wearing pants to church. You see, the list varies depending on where you are and who it is you're connected with. And the reason for that confusion, listen carefully, worldliness is not primarily about externals. Worldliness is a mindset, it's an attitude that is just as much at home at Brooks Brothers as black leather, and it's just as much at home in blue jeans as Armani, and everything in between. Because worldliness doesn't have to do primarily with the externals, it has to do with what's going on in your heart. Worldliness is, listen carefully, here's a definition, worldliness is eagerly pursuing the same sinful pleasures the world pursues, or number two, living with the primary purpose of pursuing legitimate pleasures. That's worldliness. Either pursuing sinful pleasures with the same sort of reckless abandon the world around you does, or pursuing legitimate pleasures as your only purpose in life. And worldliness, or as James calls it, friendship with the world, is hostility toward God. Why is that? Because the pursuit of sinful pleasure and the pursuit of God are diametrically opposed. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, There are lovers of pleasures, and then there are, on the other hand, lovers of God. And you can't be both at the same time. So back in James chapter 4, verse 4, in the first part of the verse, the Holy Spirit makes a general point. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And then in the second half of the verse, he applies it very directly. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Your first response to that may be this. I don't want to be a friend of the world. But that's James' point. If you choose, and if I choose to pursue our own sinful lusts, the same ones that the people around us pursue, And then when someone gets in the way of our pursuit of that pleasure, we routinely argue and fight with that person, then we are choosing to be a friend of the world. If we love the world, we are idolaters, and our false God is the world, the mindset of our age. It can happen certainly to false Christians, that is, people that connect themselves to the church, but end up showing that they weren't the genuine thing to begin with. You remember Demas, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Paul says, Demas, my fellow worker for a while, has deserted me, having what? Loved this present world. But it can also happen to us as believers. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle John gives us this warning that you and I can be susceptible to falling in love with the world, the system, the mindset that's around us. Verse 15, 1 John 2, 
Do not love the world. Stop loving the world and the things that are in the world. If anyone as a habit, as a pattern of life, is loving the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now he's going to give us an idea of what he means by this term world. He says, let me give you an idea of what constitutes the world. All that is in the world, here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Notice that worldliness here is all about what goes on in your heart. It's craving, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What are these things that constitute the world system in which we live? If you want to know what the world is in biblical terms, here it is. It's the system that encourages, that promotes these three realities. The lust of the flesh, that is the cravings of our flesh, probably a reference to the bodily appetites. It is a life lived to satisfy the strong cravings of the flesh. And you and I both know people around us who live to satisfy those cravings. Then he says, the cravings of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. This is a difficult phrase to understand. It's probably a reference to the fact that we long to possess. What the eyes see, we crave to have. We live in a world that's given over to the pursuit of things. You know, the guy with the bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's the mindset of our world. I've got to have. Even if I can't afford it, I've got to have it. And then thirdly, he says, the boastful pride of life. Here is the person who takes pride in who he is, in what he has accomplished, in his status in the world. John says this is what makes the world go round. This is what characterizes the mindset of a world that's hostile to God. It lives for the cravings of its flesh, for the cravings of its eyes and desire to possess, and to inflate itself with others. And he goes on to say in verse 16, all of that is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its cravings. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. This is exactly what James is saying. Turn back to James chapter 4. To support this radical statement that he's made in verse 4, he directs us to the Scripture. Verse 5, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Do you think that the Scripture speaks in vain? Now it's clear here that James intended to support the statement that he made in verse 4 with Scripture. But where exactly does the Scripture say what's in the second half of verse 5? Well, since there's not a verse that says exactly that, it's probably likely that James was summarizing the truth expressed in much of the Old Testament. When you look at what he says at the end of verse 5, understand as we look at it that it's the most difficult passage in the entire book to understand, and it's one of the most difficult in the entire New Testament. The problem with this expression in verse 5, is that the word spirit in Greek can be used as the subject of the sentence, or it can be the object of the sentence, which 
makes life a little difficult as we're trying to understand it. A second problem is whether the word spirit refers to the Holy Spirit or to the human spirit. In the end, though, just to simplify the whole thing, when you put all the factors together, when you look at all the evidence, you essentially come down to two main possibilities. Possibility number one, the NIV takes this approach. The human spirit constantly craves and envies. As D. Edmund Hebert explains this view, the human spirit imparted at creation longs perversely for the enjoyment of the world's pleasures, even to the point of envy. That's one approach we could take. The New American Standard takes the second approach. You see it here. God jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell within us. After spending many hours this week sorting this out, studying this verse, I think the preponderance of the evidence supports the second translation, the one in your New American Standard translation. But in this view, we could be talking about the human spirit or we could be talking about the Holy Spirit. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. The point is the same either way. Listen carefully. Here's the point. God jealously desires us to belong wholeheartedly to him. You see the Greek words jealously desire? Those refer to the kind of desire that a husband has for his wife's complete love and affection, that it be totally his. Douglas Moo says, what God requires of us is a total, unreserved, unwavering allegiance to him rather than to the world. We've already encountered this concept. You remember back in verse 17 of chapter 3, where we're told that the mature person is first of all pure. Remember that word pure can mean morally pure, but it can also mean devotionally pure, that is wholeheartedly committed to Christ. God will tolerate no rivals for our affection. This is what God jealously desires from us. We must give him our total, unreserved, unwavering allegiance. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, it seems like an impossible goal, as I know my own heart. How can we achieve that level of commitment? Well, let me tell you something. Never through the strength of your own will or the force of your own resolutions. So where do we turn for hope? Let me give you a little glimpse. Verse 6, but he, that is God, gives a greater grace. This demand, or rather this provision of grace, does not in any way lessen God's demand for our allegiance. Because the command for our allegiance is based on his character. This seems strange to our ears, but listen carefully. Our God is a jealous God. Many texts point to this reality. Let me show you just a couple of them. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, in the middle of the Ten Commandments, says, we've just been told not to worship other gods or make idols. Verse 5 You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Exodus 34, verse 14, he says, my name is jealous. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23. As Moses recounts the law to the people gathered outside the promised land, he says, watch yourselves that you do not forget. This is verse 23 of Deuteronomy 4. Watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous 
God. How could God be jealous? Well, I think Alec Motyer is right when he says jealousy, properly considered, is an essential element of true love. It is an essential longing for the loved one's welfare. John Blanchard writes, when the Bible uses jealousy of God, it is not the jealousy of self-centered possessiveness or carnal desire, but a loving concern for the welfare of his people. The bottom line is this, God demands our absolute undivided allegiance. He will tolerate no rivals. He is a jealous God. Perhaps you have never announced your allegiance to and affection for the world. But let me ask you a couple of pointed questions. Do you find your pleasure and entertainment in things that are patently hostile to God? Have you, to use James' expression, made friends with movies and music and entertainment that attack and demean the very God you profess to love? Do you crave and constantly pursue pleasures that God has directly forbidden in his word? If so... James says that you were engaged in adultery against God. You have become a friend of the world and God's enemy. Let me just ask you very directly, last week, think of your time for a moment, your use of time. This last week, what percentage of your time did you commit to carrying out love for God and love for other people? What percentage, on the other hand, of your time Did you use pursuing your own sinful pleasures or pursuing your own selfish agenda? As I've searched my own heart, I've had to acknowledge my sin. If we're going to learn to deal with sinful conflict, James says we must, number one, identify the true source. It's the pursuit of selfish pleasure. Whatever makes us happy, that's what we want. And whoever gets in the way of our happiness, we're willing to fight with. And number two... We need to magnify the real sin that lies behind conflict. If we are engaged in a pattern of arguing and quarreling, it's because we love God too little and this world and our own sinful, selfish desires too much. Dr. Christian Bernard performed the world's first human heart transplant on December 3rd, 1967. That transplant obviously made him one of the world's most noted surgeons. He went on to perform a number of other transplants. He once asked one of his patients, a man by the name of Philip Bleiberg, if he'd like to see his old heart. Bleiberg said yes, he would. And so Bernard walked over to the cupboard, took out a glass container, and handed it to Bleiberg. For a moment, he simply stood there in sort of stunned silence because he was the first man in human history to ever hold his own heart in his hands. Eventually, he spoke, and he and the doctor carried on a conversation about the technical nature of the surgery. When they were done, Bleiberg took one last look in the glass container, and then he handed it back to Bernard, and he said these words, So that is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. James has shown us our hearts. We've been able to look at them right in front of us, as it were. And our only hope is God's grace. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Tom will bring you part seven on our next broadcast. Do join us then. But before we leave you today, here again is Tom with some closing thoughts. You know, let me just take a moment and pray for all of us. Lord, we just have to ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for loving you too little and loving ourselves and our own selfish and sinful pursuits too much. Help us, Father, to truly identify the real source behind our conflicts, to see the sin for what it is. It's ultimately adultery against you because arguing and quarreling really betrays the reality that we live to pursue our own pleasures. Father, forgive us. Help us to learn from your word in this amazing passage how to overcome these patterns in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.